All right, as you're turning to Psalm 16, there are any number of things that can, can affect our outlook and, and can really alter how we think our week is going. Now, some of us are more easily altered, more easily steered off course than others. There are those of us that if we go to a restaurant and, and the lettuce is a little wilty on our salad, I mean, it just, man... That sets the whole week off, and so you walk up and say, well, Doug, tell me about your week. He's like, well, it all started Sunday at lunch. The lettuce was wilty, and I just, man, I could not get, the, I could not get myself out of that ditch the rest of the week. My joy was gone. And to Doug, we say, man, life is bigger than wilty lettuce, right? Man, but there are others of us that are encountering truly, truly awful circumstances. I mean, we, we see that in, in reports that, that Christmas time is just a really hard time because people remember back to their childhoods and they remember sorrows and sadness from them. They, they see sadness all around. There, there's this heightened sense of being lonely at Christmas time as they wonder and they look and they see all these perfect families on television and think, man, I wish my family could be like that. I wish we all had matching sweaters. I wish we had a fireplace to gather around. And I wish somebody would have called me Tad when I was just a little boy. Right? But what David shows us in this psalm is that really no matter what comes our way, as long as we have the right perspective, and as long as we recognize the true source, that as Christians, we are able to tap in to an eternal wellspring of joy that never runs dry, that isn't affected by any of the things that come our way. Let's work our way through Psalm 16 together. David writing, and he says these, these words in the first two verses, he says, Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David, now this is saying something, okay? David wasn't a minor character in, in the plan of salvation, right? David wasn't a minor character in the Old Testament. And David was not poor, right? He didn't want for very much stuff. He was fabulously wealthy, had almost limitless power, it, he, he had it going on, right? David had it all worked out. And look at what he says here. As David looks out and he sees his armies, as David looks out and he sees his fortress, as David looks out and he sees all of this stuff displayed before him, all these displays of wealth, all these displays of power, he makes this observation that God is the place he should find his refuge. He doesn't look at it and pray and say, God, thank you so much that you've given me so many strong men. God, thank you so much that you've made my walls secure. God, thank you so much that, that you've given me just, you know, I'm, I'm not affected by colds and sickness like other people. But he looks at it and he says, preserve me, O God. Man, there's this temptation in our American culture, which very much has this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that, that we should be able to affect change in our life. I mean, when we see people suffering, when we see people that are homeless, or see people that are, that are just really struggling with something, we, we want to say to them, just, man, get your stuff in order. Figure it out. Quit 
Quit belly aching and get back to work. I, you know, the reason you have so many problems is because you're, you're, you're lazy. The reason you have so many problems is because you're not dedicating yourself to the diligence of fixing the situation. Let me show you how you can fix it. I mean, David had it all fixed. David had it all together. And still, his cry was, preserve me, O God. Still, his recognition was that he needed God to keep him safe. Still, his recognition was that he needed God for his provision, for his care. And so he makes a declaration that it is in God that he takes refuge. And then he does this amazing thing. He says, I say to the Lord, and you'll notice, and you can underline this in your Bible, that that is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. David is making a reference to the, to the personal name for God. He says, look, it is in Yahweh. He says, I say to Yahweh that you are my Lord. This is what David's doing. He's making a declaration of the utter uniqueness of the Christian God. He's making a, a, a declaration that he is a God in whom there is none like him. That he is the God that is, is wholly different than all of the other gods out there. And this is what David says of that God, that he is his Lord, he is his master. David, I mean, who could, who could say to a multitude of men, go and fight, and they would go and fight. David, who could say to men, go and lay down your life, and they would go and they would lay down their life. Who could say to a nation, we will move, and they would move. David, who had this awesome display of power and authority, recognizes that even in all of this, that he is one under submission. Is there any wonder that we too should look at God and say, God, we're, we're not kings, we're not, we're not these people that are set apart, no, not many of us are famous by any stretch. Should we not too echo in the line of David that God is our Lord, that he is the one that we follow, that he is the one that we submit to? Man, look at the heart of David. That his preservation is in God, that his hope is in God, and that his submission is under God. And then David evaluates all that is around him, and he says, I have no good apart from you. Man, there are those that would read this and say that, that David is making a, a reference to his standing in redemption. As if to say that, look, God, I am not good, that there's nothing good in me. Man, that's a true statement, but David isn't making a reference to, to redemption. He's making a statement of all those things that he sees. He says, I've got no blessing. I've got no good thing. I've got no provision in my life. I've got none of this stuff apart from you. And this is a twofold recognition. It's a recognition of one thing, that God is the one bringing every blessing into your life. Even for those of you that deny him. Even for those of you who live your lives in such a way that, 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 that gives testimony to the fact that you don't actually believe in him. God is working good for you. Every good thing in your life, he has given you. Every good thing. And David, with all the wealth, with all the power, with all the homes, and as one child commented, with all the porcupines. He, he thought he was saying concubines. No, no, okay. You guys are getting there. 
You're there, okay. With all of that, he looks at it and says, God, I have no good apart from you. And when we think about our health, when we think about our families, we think about our homes and our cars, our vitality, we need to recognize that we have none of that apart from God. That God gives us all of it. He gives it all to us. Now look what he does in 3 and 4. He, he, he contrasts two groups of people. He says in 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David looks at all those who belong to the covenant, all those that are set apart unto God, and he says, man, they are the, the excellent ones. These are those that have given their lives to following God, these that are marked by the hand of God. And David says, I delight in them. Now think of yourself. The church today comprises those who are the excellent ones. The church today comprises those who are, or whom our delight should rest. I mean, can you say that about your church family? Does your life give testament to the fact that, that as you are involving yourself, as you live in community with those Christians around you, do you find your delight in them? Do you delight in their presence or do you dread their coming? See, even in the Old Testament, God was creating a people and today at Ridgecrest, we represent a portion of that people, and we should find delight in our company. Church shouldn't be this place of animosity and discord, but we should delight in one another's presence. You know why? Not because we're so good, great, and wonderful, but because the God who indwells us is. Just as we read last week that love is from God and God is love, therefore love one another, we see that same message echoed here in David's proclamation that he delights in fellowship with the body of believers. He delights in fellowship with those who have been sealed for the Lamb. Now look on the other side. David looks out and he effectively sees two groups of people. He sees those that are of the covenant and he sees those who are not. He sees those pursuing God and he sees those pursuing many gods. Small g. And he says, for the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. He looks at the lives of those who are pursuing joy and, and call that their God. He looks at the lives of those pursuing money and call that their God. He looks at the lives of those pursuing any idol, whether it be family or friends or success or any of this stuff, and he says, sorrow upon sorrow will find them out. You see what they've done? You see what you and I do when we make a good thing the ultimate thing? And we take family, which is a good thing. We say, I can't be happy apart from family. We take success, which can be a good thing. And we say, I can't be happy without success. We take health, which is a good thing that we often neglect. And we say, I can't be happy unless I'm healthy. It takes a good thing. And it makes it an ultimate thing. And when we do that, we're following in the lines of those who are pursuing other gods. And the text tells us that sorrows will multiply for them. Because they are moving away from God. 
David says two things about them. He says, one, I won't abide by their sacrifices, and secondly, I won't even utter the names of their gods. David has set himself up in such a way to say, look, I'm not going to follow in line with the sacrifices they offer to their God, and I won't even mention the name of their God. This is the pursuit of purity and dedication to God that he sets before him. With what diligence are you pursuing God? In verse 5, he turns and he, he says of God, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. <clears throat> he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. No, no, David does this amazing thing. You see, we need food and, and, and water or some type of liquid to make it, don't we? I mean, we're not, we're not going to go far without those two things. We need, we need these things to survive. And David says this of God. He says, you are my chosen portion and you are my cup. Especially those of you who didn't have a, a large breakfast this morning. You're thinking, man, that's important. Man, I should not have passed on that pig in the blanket. Those Wheaties were a wise decision, but they weren't what I would call a full decision. See, David looks at God and he says that God is that thing which I take nourishment from, that God is that thing which fills me up, that God is my destiny, that God is my lot, is what he says next. He says, you hold my lot And of that, he says, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David has this amazing understanding of of God's relation to humanity. He says that God holds his lot. That God holds all of David's life in his hand. That God holds his coming and his going. That God holds every breath in his hand. I mean, is that not just an encouraging and terrifying thought? That God is in control of all these things. And imagine David. This is the image he gives us. That he is walking the boundary lines of his kingdom. Take a journey with me and, and, and walk through the memories in your mind. And walk through the blessings God gives you even today. Man, even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of of, of coldness. Even in the midst of whatever's going on in your life. And David as a king, I'm sure, endured tremendous pressure. But as he walked through the far reaches of his kingdom, you can imagine that every vista that he encountered, he was able to declare, is even more beautiful than the one before. Everything he saw, he declared as beautiful because he recognized it as having come from God. And so he is able to declare that he has a beautiful inheritance. And this returns in praise. You see, when David establishes for himself that this is who God is, this is how God operates, this is where I am under his sovereignty, in submission to him, what it returns is, isn't a list of all the ways that God has come up short, but what it returns is, is praise in the life of David. When, when David realizes that these are the things that he can affect, and those are the things that God can affect, and his world is much smaller and much, much simpler than he previously thought it is. 
then he is able to turn and praise. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. David is making a commentary on saying, thank you God for the word. Thank you, God, for your word, which gives me instruction. Thank you, God, to your word, which gives me life. Thank you, God, to your word, which is an encouragement to me. When David, as king, wanted to know how to make a right decision, he could rely upon the man of God, and he could think back on those meditations of his word, and he could use that as an instruction. Now, unlike us, or in some ways, like many of us this past couple of weeks who haven't had a whole lot of electricity, David didn't have any. So when the sun went down, wasn't a whole lot going on. I mean, when the sun went down, what was it? It was dark, right? If you wanted light, what did you have to do? You had to, just, you had to start a fire. Fire wasn't just everywhere. Why? Because that would burn stuff down, right? It would have been a great profession if there could have been a professional firefighter in the day of David. He would likely run around telling everybody in the town, you don't like the dark? It's fine. Start a fire. I mean, I will be there. I will help you out. That, that's neither here nor there. Let's move on. And so David, David goes on and he says, look, in the night, in the night, this is what he's reflecting on. He's not recounting his day. He's not reflecting on those successes and failures, but what he is doing is is reflecting on the word of God, which is sunk into his heart. What he's reflecting on are these same words that that are recorded in the Psalms. He's reflecting on the hand of God moving. He's reflecting on God's blessing before him. He's reflecting on the fact that God is his lot. He's reflecting on all those things God has done for him. And God gives him instruction in the night. He gives him instruction in the night. David declares, he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. We see in David, one who made the conscious decision to set God always before him. Before he'd go into battle, before he would make decisions, before all of these things, David made the conscious decision day in and day out to keep the Lord before him. I mean, God shouldn't be a passing thought for us. He shouldn't be a, a you know, fourth down situation where it's like, ah, oh, man, I don't know what else to do. I guess I will pray. Nothing else to do. I guess I'll just, I'll just pray. See, God is, is not our last resort, but he should be our first course of action. We continually set God before us, before ourselves. David says that he has done this. He says that, the God, that God has given him instruction. He says that his heart is instructed because of what he has done. And he has this declaration. He says, he's my right hand and I should not be shaken. Now, in David's day, as he entered into battle, this is the way that, that he would go in. He would have a, a shield in his left hand. And for those of you who are left-handed, and aren't very good doing things with your right hand, if you ever find a time machine and go back to this day, you better figure it out. You better figure it out fast. But anyway, so David goes into battle. He's got a shield in his left hand. He's got a sword in his right hand. So if somebody's coming to attack David, which side are they going to try and strike at him from? You guys mumbled. That's right. Anyway, so he goes on, and, 
And so we see from David's perspective that the shield is what is, perfect, is what is protecting him from the left. And the sword is where he's able to strike out from the right. But he is vulnerable on the right side. He can't walk into battle with two shields. I mean, this is probably what I would do. You know, fetal position, two shields. <laughs> I'd be safe from everybody except for those under three feet. Because they're like, what up? I'm like, oh, you got me. Need three shields. Next time, three shields. One on the front, two on the sides. Now I need somebody, okay, I need a number of shields, okay? Maybe I'm just not going to battle. But anyway, so David, David looks at it, and he's got this shield on his left, and so he's able to defend against those attacks from the left, but as those attacks from the right come in, I mean, he's got this sword, and so he's able to defend himself in some way, but think about what he said of God. God is my right hand. God is there protecting him. God is there defending him. God is there keeping him secure. This doesn't mean that he won't suffer any loss. It doesn't mean that he won't suffer any type of hard circumstance, but it is a recognition that because of God's disposition towards David as he is a man of the covenant, that God will keep him from being shaken. And he shows us the extent of this starting in verse 9. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. He says, look, based upon the security I have in God, my heart is glad. He doesn't say, look, based upon all the success that I have, based upon my riches, based upon my notoriety, based upon my fame, based upon my large family, based upon all these things that men measure success by. No, instead he says, based upon the fact of what God is to me, I will be glad. Based upon all these things, I explode with joy. He says, my whole being rejoices. Have you ever watched a child dance? Have you ever seen a, a three-year-old dance and just really shake themselves? This is what it is for our whole being to rejoice. It is this unencumbered display of joy that's not shamed by pride, that is not made ashamed by saying, who else will see me? It's, it's just standing and shaking and saying, God, look at me. I'm rejoicing. My whole being is crying out. It knows no shame. It knows no fear. It finds its delight in who God is and what he has done for us. Amen? David's whole being rejoices. He says, my flesh also dwells secure. So he's talking about his body and how it is able to dwell secure. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to shoal to the pit. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He says, look, this is how far God is moving to secure me. That he's with me in my life. And that he is with me too in my death. Let me show you how this connects to us today. The Apostle Peter is preaching this amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's a sermon that ends in roughly 3,000 people coming to faith. And everybody hears it in their own language. People from all over the world are listening to this message. And he starts to say these words in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
He looks at them and says, you are guilty. You gave Jesus up. You turned him over. You allowed him to be crucified. He says this of Jesus. He said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus overcame the grave. And then quoting this psalm, he writes, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. And you will make me, full, make me full of gladness with your presence. In another place, we see him quoted once again in Acts 13, starting in verse 35. He says, therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Peter, reflecting on this psalm, saw and heard the prophetic voice of David testifying to Jesus. You see what David writes in verse 11, it's not possible outside of the move of Jesus. Outside of, of this being a testament to Jesus that he came and he lived and he died and God raised him again, that he did not see corruption, we are not able to experience verse 11 which David writes, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God calls and he beckons us to come and to receive joy and joy everlasting. He recognizes that we are a people that easily wander. He recognizes that we are a people that, that stray, that we are a people that, that pursue many pleasures. He calls us. And he says, delight in me. Find joy in me. Because in God, there is fullness of joy. And at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Apostle Paul, writing on the surety of this fact, writing on the, the strength of this promise, said these words in Romans 8, in verses 38 and 39. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us.